electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. And hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange. It's a very big day in Washington and on Wall Street. Investors are watching the political landscape with a close eye on the events of the next 24 hours. As we speak, the certification count for the presidential race is beginning in the Senate. And the votes continue to be counted in the Georgia runoffs, with the markets already jumping to some conclusions about a Democratic sweep of those seats and control of Congress as a result. We're seeing big moves in stocks, rates, and certain sectors like banks and energy in particular, even sports betting. Let's get the very latest now with Mike Santoli. Hi, Mike. Hi, Kelly. Yeah, the market's repricing in a hurry for higher nominal growth, better cyclical moves. You see here the Nasdaq is up from a negative open, but really underperforming the Russell 2000 small cap up almost four, uh, 5% actually right now. Take a look at Treasury yields. Also a huge part of the story. They have clicked above 1% on the, uh, on the 10-year yield. One way to think uh, about the, uh, the yield move has been it's gone from about 1.5% before the COVID crash. It bottomed about half a percent, and you've gained a bit more than half of that back. So we're just past the halfway mark and getting back to what used to seem like normal, 1.05% right now. Uh, it has been small caps over tech. It has been banks over tech. The yield move is helping the financials as well. Look at uh, the XLF compared to the uh, technology sector. What's fascinating here is, yes, this is dramatic right here, but it's been going on for months. This rotation has been in motion, and the Senate results and the perception of what that means has just added some torque to that. And then old economy stuff, infrastructure, we're going to be building stuff again. This is very much, by the way, the same trades that worked right after the 2016 election. The infrastructure ETF, a lot of engineering and material stocks. Just gone vertical. Uh, it's a huge move today, obviously, 5.5%. But look, this has been in an uptrend. So I, I, I think we're somewhere between early at the beginning of a trend and, and the end of a trend. But it, it didn't just uh, kind of move with a, with a flick of a switch either in the November election or last night. Kelly. But, Mike, it's fascinating. To your point, you've got banks, energy, some infrastructure stocks. I mean, certainly with the former two, these are exactly the groups that we saw take off when Trump was elected. So 100%. they've they've... They, like many uh, American voters, apparently changed their minds. Exactly. And I think really the, the, the common thread is right now it seems like the policy mix is heading for higher nominal growth. Back then it was about lower tax rates doing that and maybe some infrastructure. Now it's much more about maybe another fiscal push. But it's a very similar calculus, I think, that the market's doing. Keep in mind that that theme after the 2016 election, it only really led the market for a few months. After that, it became much more, again, a growth-centric market or more diversified. So it it isn't as if uh, the market always gets it perfectly right about what the next couple of years is going to look like. No, that's for sure. Uh, But it's jumping to some conclusions right now. Mike, thank you so much. That's Michael Santoli. Politics front and center this hour with Congress counting and confirming Joe Biden's presidential win, Georgia working to finalize its vote tally, and all of this happening amid protests within Congress and on the streets of D.C. For the latest, I'm joined now by our own Shepard Smith. He's host of the News with Shepard Smith, of course. Shep, what can you tell us? Kelly, good afternoon. A historic day unfolding in Washington. A joint session of Congress convening in this hour to count the electoral votes and formally declare Joe Biden 
the 46th president of the United States. But it promises not to be as easy as that. Far from it. This process, normally a formality, will be a long one today. Here's what's set to happen. The electoral votes to be counted are in two mahogany boxes, which were just brought into the chamber moments ago. Then Vice President Mike Pence, minutes from now, will call the session to order. Congress then will go through the certifications from each state alphabetically, individually. Lawmakers then have the ability to raise objections if they like. We now know at least 13 Republican senators say they plan to do exactly that, object. More than 100 House Republicans as well. The first state that's likely to yield an objection is Arizona. And then following the Constitution, Senate and House members go to their respective chambers to debate that objection. Each debate can last two hours. And then each chamber votes and the process continues. To be clear, there are not enough Republicans who say they plan to object to change the outcome at all. Whenever the political theater ends, Joe Biden will be declared the winner. That is a fact that is being protested right now in Washington. Thousands of the president's supporters gathering, echoing his baseless claims that the election was somehow stolen. The president himself stoking the message loudly and profanely to the crowd. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. Well, it appears that he won't. Uh, as the president continues to focus on his election, his party is on the cusp of losing control of the Senate. One of Two runoffs has already been called for the Democrats. NBC News projects Georgia's Raphael Warnock has beaten the incumbent uh, Senator Kelly Leffler. The other race still too close to call, but the Democrat John Ossoff is leading over the Senator David Perdue, according to the NBC News decision desk. Votes still being counted. If Democrats do win that race, which is likely, it would create a 50-50 split in the United States Senate, which would leave the new vice president, Kamala Harris, serving as the tiebreaker. So she'll have a busy few years. That would give Democrats control of the White House, both chambers of Congress, and effectively in control of Washington, Kelly. Shep, stay right there because we just got some breaking news from the vice president himself, Mike Pence. Let's get right to Eamon Javers. We'd love uh, you to stay right there. Shep, will come right back to you. Eamon, what can you tell us? Well, Kelly, the vice president, Mike Pence, has just rejected the argument made by his boss, President Donald Trump, about the role that he is set to play here in the House chamber, as you just were looking at those shots, presiding over this joint session of Congress to count the Electoral College votes. Remember, President Trump has been arguing that Mike Pence somehow has the authority under the Constitution to reject some of these Electoral College votes. That view is not shared by any constitutional scholar that we can find. And the vice president has just issued this statement uh, saying that the president is simply wrong on it. He says, it is my considered judgment that my oath to support and defend the Constitution constrains me from claiming unilateral authority to determine which electoral votes should be counted and which should not. It's a lengthy statement from the vice president, but he also goes on to say 
that vesting the vice president with unilateral authority to decide presidential contests would be entirely antithetical to the design of the founders. As a student of history who loves the Constitution and reveres its framers, I do not believe that the founders of our country intended to invest the vice president with unilateral authority to decide which electoral votes should be counted during the joint session of Congress. So there is the vice president laying out his plan to serve in the ceremonial and formal role that we've seen vice presidents it serve in throughout the history of this country here and not to do what the president has urged him to do as recently as within the past hour, which is to reject some of those electoral college votes. So a, a substantial break here politically between Mike Pence and Donald Trump. But under the Constitution and the law, there simply was no other course of action for the vice president here. Kelly, back over to you. Eamon, thank you. So, Shep, with this move by the vice president, does that effectively seal it? Well, it should. I mean, it was sealed long ago, actually. This, the, all of this is formality and political theater. And the president continues to rile up the crowd. I was listening to him uh, on another station just, just a minute ago. And the level of vitriol is still at, it's, it's, it's up there with Bitcoin. I'm telling you, it, it's, it's profane. He's, he's cursing. He's blaming. He's pretending there was a steal of the election. And there is a group in America who believes the election was stolen, despite the fact that it wasn't. And, you know, I've heard Republican after Republican say, you know, he's, he's going to burn down the house on the way out the door. Uh, and, and it appears at least that that's what he's doing today. I, whether this is a setup for something that, that comes after remains to be seen. But, but on the 20th of this month, there's a new president and he's out. Yeah. And the vice president, again, saying he, you know, he disagrees with those who think electoral votes should never be challenged by Congress. But such disputes should be resolved by elected lawmakers. A fine line he's had to walk uh, this entire time between what his boss uh, is pressing for and what he believes his uh, his duty is. Shep, we appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Uh, Shep Smith recapping all these developments for us. Don't forget, you can catch him tonight on the news with Shepard Smith and every night at 7 p.m. Eastern right here on CNBC. Let's dive a little deeper now into the looming power shift in Washington as a result of the events of the last few moments and hours. Joining me now is Jerry Seib. He's executive Washington editor at The Wall Street Journal. He's had a front row seat, of course, to politics and power in Washington for the last four decades and interviewed every president since Reagan. Jerry, it's good to see you back. Uh, do you want to comment at all on, on what's gone down uh, just in the last few moments here as we begin? <laughs> it's kind of hard to know where to start. You know, it takes your breath away a little bit. I mean, Shep is right. You know, uh, the, the president's rhetoric at the rally is, uh, is pretty remarkable, and it's a lot of it uh, is directed at his own party, other Republicans, Bill Barr, Liz Cheney, uh, Republican leaders in general. So, um, you know, there is a kind of a, a take the party down with me aspect to this. And a lot of it was directed at Vice President Pence, who must have known that was coming because he was prepared to say how he's going to handle this afternoon. So I do think we're looking at mostly political theater. The uh, outcome is a foregone conclusion, uh, but it'll be uh, it'll be hours before this plays out. Um, I do think that at every step of this process, it becomes a little more clear that Joe Biden will clearly be the next president of the United States. 
Yeah, and as we talk about the the power shift, the balance of power shift there, I also think it's worth noting that after November 7th, initially, it looked like a reckoning for the Democrats. I mean, here was a party yeah. that uh, thought they were going to have a blue wave and instead was given uh, a purple, if not red, Congress with a, yeah. a democratically elected uh, Democrat president, which is highly unusual. Now, it looks like a moment of reckoning for the GOP with the results of this Georgia uh, runoff, Jerry, suggesting perhaps that the loss, the, the lack of enthusiasm and the civil war, I think, as you alluded to, uh, that's now brewing. Yeah, it's a really good point, Kelly, because, you know, really what Republicans could have been doing over the last month or six weeks was celebrating what was a very good election night for them initially. I mean, they gained seats in the House, which was not expected. Most of the Republican incumbent senators who were imperiled defended themselves and held their seats. There was every reason to think they could win at least one of these Georgia Senate seats. And except for the vote at the uh, at the presidential level, um, the uh, Republicans had a very good night. They won states in the legislative chambers all around the country. Now, though, they're about to apparently lose control of the Senate because they've lost those two Georgia seats, in part because it appears the president's rhetoric probably helped suppress Republican votes. He said, essentially, the voting is rigged. And you say to yourself, why should I vote in a rigged election? Um, and so what might have been a very happy post-election period for Republicans is turning out to be anything but that. And um, that was probably avoidable because, um, you know, the, the truth is on November 3rd, uh, the party did quite well, except at the presidential level. November 3rd. I think I said November 7th. I appreciate you correcting the record there. So the other interesting factor now with control, uh, let's call it a light blue wave, or for lack of a better word, Democratic <laughs> control of the Senate, which appears yeah. uh, like the outcome here. You know, there's a lot of focus by, by investors in the near term on what that's going to do for tax rates and uh, certainly for stimulus checks. We've already been hearing some rhetoric from the new leader, Chuck Schumer. But to me, the more consequential issues longer term are, are we doing away with the filibuster? And is somebody like Joe Manchin all that stands between uh, now and that outcome? Well, let's look at this in stages. I mean, in the short term, a Democratic president and a Demo this Democratic president and a democratically controlled Senate certainly means more stimulus spending, and that makes the markets happy because it's a short-term stimulus, uh, coronavirus stimulus. Uh, probably means better chances of a big infrastructure bill in the next year or so. Uh, President Trump tried to do that, but he didn't succeed. This alignment probably speaks to that, and there, uh, as the previous segment indicated, there are uh, aspects of the market that like that. In the medium term, it probably means more attempts uh, by Democrats to roll back Trump tax cuts, but that is going to be difficult because with the Senate 50 50, which would be the outcome. Democrats are nominally in charge, but really nobody's in charge. And as you suggest, centrists in both parties who aren't going to be wild about big tax increases have a lot of leverage. So you could expect some movement on the tax front, but not giant movement. Um, and President Biden has kind of made it clear that he's not really interested in rolling back the filibuster. He's a kind of a Senate institutionalist and traditionalist, was there for four decades. And so a lot of the liberal uh, 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 progressive wing of the Democratic Party will have a wish list that I think is actually going to be fairly difficult to enact, even though they will have nominal control of both the White House and Congress. So I think from the market's point of view, this is a formula that still kind of keeps the process in the middle of the road in Washington. It's not going to veer as far left as some people in uh, the Bernie Sanders wing of the party might have expected or liked. 
One final question, Jerry, as we watch markets at session highs right now with the Dow up more than 600 points today and a lot of this seeming to come back to some of those points that you just mentioned, maybe that, you know, there's not big changes um, that could be headwinds, but we could see stimulus checks. It's those checks I wanted to ask you about because we've seen uh, economists on the left like uh, Larry Summers come out and say he doesn't think they're a good idea that we're talking about a 15 percentage point boost to household income this year. Um, seems like to to highs and, and growth rates that we've never really before experienced. So is it in your mind a foregone conclusion that we're going to see a, some sort of stimulus package and, and checks with a multi-hundred billion dollar price tag attached to it, yeah. or could they face more resistance than we might think at this hour? There might. I think there will definitely be another stimulus package, whether it includes precisely $2,000 checks or not. I don't know. I think uh, Senator Schumer has already indicated that's going to be his goal. But as we've seen in the last month, it's a long road to travel from wish to reality on this front, and that'll still uh, be the case. But clearly, there's going to be more coronavirus stimulus spending. One footnote here that's worth noting, Kelly, is the other thing that will certainly happen if this alignment holds, if Democrats control um, the the Senate and the White House, um, there will be a regulatory roll forward that some of the Trump deregulation uh, will go away and that won't necessarily make the markets happy. There will also be, uh, to state the obvious, fewer conservative judges and uh, more liberal judges. That's the other big change with Democratic control of the Senate. Yep. And the implications there uh, for a wide range of industries and, and states and so forth. Jerry, great to have you today. Thanks so much for your time. Happy to be with you. Jerry Seib with The Wall Street Journal. Let's stick with some of these themes. These aren't the only developments for the markets to digest today. We also learned from ADP that the jobs report was a bit of a disappointment. And against that backdrop, take a look at investors just shaking off some of this and taking it in stride. As I mentioned a moment ago, we're at session highs for the Dow and the S&P and record highs as well. Dow's up 619. That's a 2% gain. The Nasdaq, interestingly, is the laggard up 6 tenths. The 10-year yield back above 1% for the first time since March, and even the dollar moving slightly higher off of nearly three-year lows. So what's most important for investors to focus on right now? For that, let's bring in Barry James. He's president at James Investment Research, and Terry Spath is chief investment officer at Sierra Mutual Funds. Great to have you both here. uh, Barry, what is the most important thing uh, of this entire mix that we're sifting through today for you? Well, um, in 1976, I was at the Air Force Academy in Colorado, and it was a centennial, and there was a song that played day and night on one channel, Rocky Mountain High. Today, investors are market at new high. And what our research shows is that when you get one new high, you tend to get a second and a third, and it keeps on, on heading higher at least, at least for a while. I would say that the changes in Washington might elicit some volatility and perhaps a, a pullback. But uh, the economy looks pretty good. The Fed's right there. There's going to be more stimulus. So we would say uh, upward, but with a change to more cyclical types of stocks, maybe smaller types of stocks. Uh, and uh, we think that's probably the, the best place to, to play this market. And Barry, you sound more upbeat on the market and the prospects for the economy than the last few times that we've spoken. What's changed? Well, the biggest thing that's changed is the, the market uh, doesn't seem to, uh, you know, think that there's anything to hold it back. The, the Federal Reserve doing what it's doing, the stimulus that's been pouring out. I would say that we're going to see some volatility. It's not that I don't think that that exists, uh, but it's more of a rotation than anything else. The rotation to small, the cyclicals. Uh, we like names like Caterpillar on the infrastructure side, Innova on the small side uh, do 
does the, you know, lending to small businesses. And then, um, you know, a, a company like Pioneer Natural Resources in a much hated area, uh, shale drilling in the Permian Basin. But all of these are good companies <laughs> and growing margins, and uh, they look pretty promising to us. Yeah, and it's not so hated anymore after the last couple months in Saudi Arabia helping everybody out yesterday. All right, so Terry, let me turn to you. I know your ways to play this market are a little bit different. Um, where do you see the most areas of opportunity? And are you still in the camp that says this is a risk on environment? Yeah, great to see you, Kelly, and happy new year. In terms of theme, the Georgia race, as you've been highlighting, is absolutely front and center. And that reach can be felt far and wide in the markets today. But I loved what you said, that it's not a blue wave, but a light blue wave. Completely agree with that. And a lot of the trends that we saw four years ago uh, in terms of rising interest rates and infrastructure plays are absolutely playing out today, as well as a record high in the Dow. But we would point investors to look outside of these borders. If you think there's been strong trends in small cap stocks and infrastructure stocks, we've seen that to a much greater extent in emerging market stocks. And I think we'll continue to see that going forward with a weaker dollar, with strength in China, with inflation in check in these countries, monetary and fiscal support. So we would definitely ask viewers to take a look outside the U.S. for even stronger trends for their investment portfolios. Anything that could upset that apple cart, Terry, because, you know, a lot of times looking outside the U.S. means weak dollar, but we see a little bit of, a, of strength today. You know, we're kind of thinking through the impact of higher interest rates and what that could mean for other markets. Sure. I mean, a stronger dollar generally hurts a lot of things, including emerging market stocks, emerging market debt and even U.S. stocks. So that would be something to to keep a close look on. I, I also think that this trend that we're seeing in the Treasury rate above on the 10 year above 1% is something to keep an eye on because that absolutely serves as a headwind for a number of different things. A less risky way to play um, outside of these borders is to own emerging market debt. You can get really nice yields on that, a lot less volatility and a return that we think makes sense um, for the risk that you take for that. Uh, makes me nervous, but you're the pro. <laughs> Terry and Barry, <laughs> thank you both today for your thoughts on these markets. Terry Spath and Barry James, we appreciate it. With markets hitting record highs as investors digest all the news from Washington, CNBC Pro has rounded up the stocks analysts expect to benefit the most from a Democratic Congress. It covers key sectors like infrastructure, industrials, and clean energy. We got names like Vulcan, which is up more than 9% right now. Jacobs Engineering, First Solar, seeing similar gains. The whole list is over at CNBC.com slash pro. Still ahead, the distribution dilemma. The vaccine rollout is going a lot slower than planned. We're going to look at some of the reasons why, including several issues that aren't being talked about. Plus, pot stocks are lighting up not only in hopes of a Democratic Senate win, but also as New York Governor Cuomo proposes to legalize it in his state. Is cannabis back in investors' good graces? We're back in a moment. This is... The Exchange on CNBC.
Welcome back. The COVID-19 vaccine rollout kicked off in mid-December with promises of bringing the pandemic to an end. But obstacles are getting in the way of vaccinations as hospitalizations and deaths keep rising across the country. So far, just over 17 million of the 200 million doses secured from Pfizer and Moderna have been distributed and less than 5 million people have actually received their first dose. So why the holdup? Here to discuss is Dr. Sharif El-Nahal. He is CEO of University Hospital at Rutgers Medical School. Doctor, welcome. And we promise that you have some points uh, here to make that we haven't really heard about the hiccups in the distribution process, what would you point to? Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, uh, there was definitely a delay in the shipment of Pfizer doses. Uh, we were set to receive another shipment just a week after our first, and we had scheduled uh, patients going into uh, the next several weeks. And unfortunately, the state had to make quick work uh, to switch those with Moderna vaccines, which did cause a delay. Another piece of this is that the actual uh, setup for administration of these vaccines is quite complex. If you think about the schedule of a typical pediatrician, about 30 patients a day, let's say, for childhood immunizations, we're expected to do between 500 and 600 immunizations today in about a 300 to 400 bed hospital. And so that really requires an assembly line-like setup. It requires several weeks of planning. It requires making sure the complex storage is connected to individuals at the other end of the process. And for places that don't have uh, all of that infrastructure and that expertise, they really need more technical assistance from the federal government. And unfortunately, Operation Warp Speed only really seemed to focus on the science and ultimately the development and approval of these vaccines, but not the logistics around distribution and administration. I guess that said, we've known for weeks that these vaccines were likely coming. So why couldn't people start making plans? I mean, why are they caught so off guard? Well, you have a situation where we have to limit the initial doses to phase 1A people. So we're talking about healthcare workers. We're talking about uh, folks who work in nursing homes and long-term care residents. We have not really gotten out of that phase yet, and we need guidance from the federal government to do so. So that's one element. Another element is that a lot of places just don't have the resources to be able to administer the vaccines efficiently. And again, to have a federal government that is not stepping up and planning on this uh, for the several months before to assist under-resourced states and healthcare systems to be able to administer this, I think is unfortunate. We have to make sure that we're supporting underserved areas in this country. And, you know, our experience, we ended up using about 90%, uh, greater than 90% of our Pfizer stock right before our next shipment. Uh, and so there are hospitals and healthcare systems that are able to do this, but we need that mm -hmm. expertise and that help from the federal government to get others to do so. So we have now Alex Azar of HHS saying that U.S. states can accelerate uh, administration by moving on to broader populations. This was in a briefing that pharmacies can provide more rapid access than hospitals potentially. Um, is this a key pivot point where we could start to see the handoff from hospitals to now pharmacies, supermarkets, drugstores, anybody who can start to get the general population in there? Absolutely. I think extending access by any means, including through pharmacies, which are accessible and familiar to so many people, will really help. The other thing is that the guidance that Secretary Azar gave uh, is allowing states to continue with the prioritization process. And so Governor Murphy uh, here in New Jersey literally just announced uh, that essential workers, particularly police and firefighters, can start getting the vaccine uh, soon. So that sign off and that blessing is really important. I do think that if states are ready and healthcare facilities 
facilities are ready, they should be able to be vaccinating more of the population. The key here is to get 70 to 80 percent of the entire country vaccinated. And so if there's no reason to wait, we should really be pursuing this. Yeah, we're at one and a half percent. Time to get cracking. Dr. Elnahal, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Dr. Sharif Elnahal joining us today. Coming up, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo giving another sector a boost. And it's DraftKings, Penn National and Churchill Downs all surging as sports betting enjoys liftoff. He made some comments that he'll push for online sports betting in his state. We will have those details coming up. Plus, PPP is coming back with $284 billion soon available for small businesses. But will the tweaks that have been made to the program actually make it better this time around? Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We've got a big rally on the street right now. The Dow crossing above 31,000. We're just below that level right now, still up 570 points as the Dow clearly paces the way today with a 1.9% gain. S&P's up 1.3%. The Nasdaq way lagging, up four-tenths of 1%. And a look at the sectors, this tells you why. Financials and materials are up nearly 5% today. Energy up 3.5%. And on the flip side, tech is the biggest laggard, a half percent decliner there. Real estate communication services services down as well. Small cap stocks are participating in the rally today and with a vengeance. The Russell 2000, take a look here, is up nearly 5% four and three quarters. We talked about the 10 year as well. It's yield popping above 1% for the first time since March. Look at the regional banks and how they're reacting as a result. The ETF, the KRE, is soaring. Uh, It's up 8.5%. You've got names like Zion's up 11.5%. And for a second day, the energy sector is also taking off. Take a look at some of those names. Oil is above $50 a barrel. We first touched that yesterday. Schlumberger, Devon, up more than 6%, has having a strong session as well. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. In Washington, President Trump telling a rally once again that the 2020 election was stolen from him, but not giving any proof to support his claims. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. Multiple reports say President-elect Joe Biden has selected Judge Merrick Garland to be his attorney general. In 2016, President Obama selected Garland to serve on the Supreme Court, but the Republican-led Senate refused to hold hearings on his nomination. And for the first time in four years, gas mileage for new vehicles in the U.S. fell and pollution levels rose. This is Americans bought more SUVs and trucks, which are not as fuel efficient. That is the news update this hour. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. No, they are not, Sue. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. My minivan has terrible gas mileage, it's like <laughs> 21 miles per gallon. But you, you'll come out of it's the like, minivan phase at some point, Kel. I did. It just takes a few years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like 20, probably. Sue, thank you very much. You got it. Sue Herrera, back at headquarters. Coming up, a top analyst calls Tesla the chosen one. Oat milk may be the next IPO. And Tiffany has record sales during a pandemic. We'll tell you why. It's all in rapid fire right after this. Stay with us.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Mobile gaming stocks are rallying this hour. And that's on comments by New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Let's check in with Contessa Brewer for more details on the story. Contessa? Hi, Kelly. Yeah, he's surrendering his longstanding opposition to mobile sports gambling. He says the state's need for new tax revenue is behind his decision. And let's look at the ways these gaming stocks have reacted. And mind you, this has calmed down from earlier today. We're seeing Boyd Gaming up 5.5%, DraftKings up almost 5 Bally's up almost 4 Churchill Downs, MGM is popping as well. It's up more than 4%. And I want to bring your attention to GAN, which is a tech provider for multiple gaming companies like uh, Churchill Downs, FanDuel, and Win. It just launched on the NASDAQ last year. Up, uh, well, right now it's up as you can see, almost 12% today. CEO Dermot Smurfit told me today, GAN has multiple clients with market access in place for New York, but he told me, look, the opportunity in expanded tax revenue for the state would come from legalizing iGaming, that is casino games that you can play on your phone, Kelly. That's where the real growth potential is here. All right. Although, again, for New York, they have to balance that between their need to support the casinos as well. Quick comment on that, Contessa? Well, Cuomo says uh, he's not doing this to make money for the casinos. He says, you know, we may have to look at this like the way other states run sports gambling through their lotteries. Um, and, and we've had analyst notes out on that today already. Uh, Carlo Santarelli from Deutsche Bank was pointing out that there are three other states that run sports gambling through their um, lottery. That would be bad news for the casinos. But in the meantime, you have the governor's own um, office sending out a note saying, look, we're going to have the licensees apply, but they have to have a relationship with existing casinos. So that would limit the number of people who want to get in. New York potentially could be the biggest sports betting state in the nation. It could be. But again, a delicate dance with some of those upstate casinos. Contessa, thank you very much. Contessa Brewer is watching that action for us. Also, another round of PPP money will be available soon for small businesses. But is it too little too late? Kate Rogers is here with more on these efforts, as we might hear from the president-elect on it next hour, Kate. Kelly, that's right. The SBA says it will be releasing its latest rules for the program today, and lenders are expecting a launch potentially by early next week, although that hasn't been formally announced just yet. The $284 billion in PPP funding will look similar and different for borrowers this time around. Now, this new package has set-asides for small businesses with under 10 employees, as well as $30 billion in loans from smaller community lenders, CDFIs and MDIs. Advocates are hopeful that businesses that truly truly need the aid or able to access it early on this time around, including minority-owned businesses, which are more likely to be non-employer firms. And so to have a set-aside for those lenders by themselves of $15 billion is also very helpful to ensure that we're getting funds to the businesses who have who were who are left out of that initial round of funding and who have been struggling for a while and that are and that are in communities that are also being hardest hit both by the pandemic and um, the economic fallout of the pandemic. Second draw loans are available if you can demonstrate a 25% decline in revenue and restaurants. They can borrow a bit more, although they weren't given the rescue fund that the industry had really pushed and asked for. There's also streamlined forgiveness now for loans under $150,000. But while advocacy groups are hopeful for many businesses, Kelly, this could just be coming weeks and months too late to save their operations. Back over to you. And. Kate, what are we hearing from the president-elect? Does he have concerns about the way this program is structured right now? 
I think he's going to be focusing on getting the aid to the groups that we mentioned, minority-owned businesses, businesses that missed out on the first time around, those truly small firms with perhaps no employees or under 10 employees. That'll be a big focus. And Kelly, there should be some pretty high demand. The NFIB says about 90% of its members that receive loans have used them in full. And just under half say they would go back for second drop PPP loans, which it can do if you uh, demonstrate that you have a 25% revenue decline, which is really important. So we'll see. Yeah, a lot of tweaks this time around, uh, hoping that it reaches as many people as possible uh, to be super effective. Kate, thank you. Our Kate Rogers keeping tabs on that story for us. That does it for the exchange today. But up next on Power Lunch, there's a whole lot more action. We're also going to hit what uh, has been going on in New Hampshire. They've been one of the best COVID vaccination rates in the country, according to the CDC. The governor, Kristen Noonan, will join us, talk about what they've been doing to get those vaccines out to as much of the population as possible. I'll join Tyler Matheson for that and a whole lot more on the other side of this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.